0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Kurenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Pete Florence. Pete is a research scientist at Google Research on the robotics at Google team inside the brain team. His research focuses on topics in robotics, computer vision, and natural language, including 3D learning, self-supervised learning, and policy learning in robotics. Before Google, he finished his PhD in computer science at MIT with Russ Tedrake. I think we're, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of exciting research uh, in robotics. So, uh, thanks, Pete, for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andre. All right, and then as always, before we get into talking about papers, uh, we'd like to hear how you got your start in AI, both in terms of finding it interesting and then winding up doing research on it.
1: Sure, yeah. So I started working on um, robotics and AI research in 2014, and I think it was a very interesting time in a lot of ways to sort of just be starting out. And also, um, you know, b- before that, so this was a couple of years after college for me. And before that I had been working on uh, very much completely different stuff, which, you know, I sort of like to call out since actually a lot of people that sort of start working on these things that, you know, at some point had been working on very different things. So, um, for me, I'd been doing, uh, my undergrad was in chemistry and physics and I would worked at a startup for a year and I was generally working in the area of uh, sustainable energy. So I had done a bunch of research in. Um, the sort of science and engineering of how we make uh, photovoltaics, So solar cells work, you know, the sort of eventual goal of making them be so much cheaper and better to pretty different from AI. <laughs> yes, very much. So I was, that yeah. was like, that, that's was what I was working on at the time. And it's, I think it's a very noble area, you know, of course, like very important to be working on. Um, uh, and I had worked on it for sort of a while. I mean, not, too long but at least my you know uh, just after college self felt like i had been working on it for a while and i i was ready for something new and i had this sort of itch to like you know what if i could go work on uh um at the time it wasn't as much of a thing as it is now too i think at the time i sort of had to explain a little bit more to people they were like you know wait you want to go work on like robotics like what you know and so um
0: yeah i mean ai uh, in general was just starting to get kind of huge around 2012, 2013, 2014 with deep learning. So that was kind of like mm-hmm. early on in this giant wave we've been riding uh, for like a decade now.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: And as I think you know too, Andre, although
1: the sort of like, you know, ImageNet moment had happened in 2012 or so, in, you know, 2013, 2014, when I was thinking of and and choosing to join... Uh, and you know starting to work on robotics it, deep learning hadn't come yet to robotics it was more into the next you know 2015 2016 when deep learning didn't really it was then when it came to robotics so it was i did start my phd in a pre deep learning phase for robotics at least but it was it was very much you know in the air at the time between the computer vision and uh you know other areas of the building at a at MIT CSAIL that i did my um grad school in
0: yeah, I remember. I think DPG came out maybe in 2014 or 2015, and just seeing, a, you know, an agent with how many degrees of freedom being controlled via RL kind of blew my mind at the time. And then, totally. yeah. Okay, so um, you got into your PhD from a pretty interesting background, which, as you say, we we see pretty often in AI. And it looks like your first couple of papers, your first couple of years were dedicated to working on quadcopters. That's right. So we won't get too much into it, but can you just give a high-level overview of what you worked on in those years and and how many quadcopters were broken in the process?
1: (laughs) A lot of quadcopters definitely broken yeah the um so that's right the the first thing sort of that I worked on for the first couple of years of me working on um robotics was was with drones, and a, a lot of it was kind of generally in the area of trying to get drones to like fly fast in unknown environments. the sort of like vision we had at the time, which is like now you know you can kind of buy a skydio drone that can kind of do some of these things, but at the time it it, it didn't exist to have like a drone that could just like fly through a forest, you know, like, like, uh, that, that was kind of, you know, somewhat inspired by the, uh, you know, in star Wars Endor these like speeder bikes, like speeding through a forest. That was kind of, you know, the, the thing that we are looking for. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was really fun. I think like, uh, so it was very challenging problem in a lot of ways. These were, you know, uh, Everything ran on CPU only, so this this set of projects for me was was very much a you know no deep learning yet type of um, style of doing robotics. Partly, partly again, just because we only really had CPUs, you couldn't really get powerful GPUs embedded. Didn't really exist yet. It was Nvidia was starting to make these kind of embedded platforms, but at the time that wasn't really a possibility. Um, and um, uh, yes, definitely a lot of drones were broken. I think a really interesting aspect for me of, of working on that area was just generally like learning a lot about how to build robots that like work in the real world. And I think, um, you know, in a way that's agnostic to the method, the sort of core, like, um, method of the, you know, that we sort of talk about in research papers of how the robot is thinking about its world. There's all this stuff kind of underneath that, like, kind of like, um, you know, a Linux operating system there might be a lot of AI research that's run on the Linux operating system but there's there's lots of things that are kind of like robot operating systems you know not just ROS but also all these other aspects of just you know running sensors designing control loops logging debugging visualization that needs to happen in any type of robot demo um, no matter what type of sort of higher level uh, software stack you put on them and i you know i really learned a lot in in that time with those types of projects so yeah a few different ones, all kind of related to getting drones to fly around and dodge stuff, tons of things broken. Another thing that was very you know sort of fun and easy with that time andre is you know i think uh for people that might work on other types of robot platforms, like I've worked a lot on robot arms now in sort of more later research. And I know Andre, you've also worked on kind of, you know, like more manipulation style um, or kind of slow navigation robots is also another thing that a lot of people work on, but drones are fast, you know? And so like you don't need to speed up your video and it's obviously (laughs) going to be like fun to watch and, you know, things are going to crash or they're almost going to crash and, that was a fun thing about working on, mm. on drones for sure. So like I helped um, – there's this grad student in the lab. Uh, Andy Berry is one of my really good friends. And, uh, you know, I, I helped him with his uh, sort of final PhD project where we, it was a plane flying 30 miles an hour towards trees. And like at the time, like that was, you know, just way faster than anything anybody had ever seen. And, um, yeah, know, so that, that was a lot of like – Geometrical computer vision and fast motion planning, and a lot of engineering to, to get these things to work. Um, yeah, it was it was it was fun stuff.
0: Yeah, sounds like uh, it would be a little more exciting to see your uh, research work uh, with quadcopters than in robot arms. You know, you know, seeing it flying around instead of like pushing blocks. So I can imagine that's fun. Yeah, I was saying with like. If instead with like
1: manipulation style robots, we're just pushing blocks around, which is really hard. But then often it's sort of, you know, people aren't sort of obviously, they don't obviously see that it's like, oh, wow, there's this amazing thing happening. Whereas, yeah, with drones, it's a little bit more obvious. Hmm.
0: Uh, So you worked on that for a while, and then uh, a few years into it, you kind of had a bit of a switch of focus when you got into dense visual representations of objects and really moving into computer vision. So yeah, to start with, can you just describe what was the overall focus or what are these dense visual representations and maybe, you know, what inspired you to go into that direction? Sure. Yeah.
1: So, um, a lot of things here. For, for me, this was the sort of first project that I worked on in, in this area. the The idea of dense visual learning uh, that was sort of a topic that at the time I was thinking about a lot and still do um, is sort of. I think of it as an aspect of visual understanding of the world that like. We are just so, as humans, we're just automatically, we take it so for granted. And it's actually even sometimes hard to describe to people because it's like, well, duh, of course we can do that. But these are the types of things that just robots just do not know how to do. So basically, the idea is if you're looking at the world in front of you, you know, maybe you're looking at a, a desk and it's got some objects on it, and you just, you're looking at this thing, you're looking at the scene in front of you, and you just move your head to the side and you look at it from a different angle, you can obviously, um, what's called correspond every single thing that you're looking at in the world, which means that you can tell from one view, like, you know, this corner of that object is the same as, uh, you know, this corner of the object from a different view. Again, it's a thing that like we're so good at doing. um, But, you know, uh, robots just don't, don't come with. So that was kind of the idea was to explore how this concept of dense visual learning can, can sort of help, as a, a self-supervised uh, representation way for, to make robots better. Um, there was a, there's very much this like quote from Jeffrey Hinton that I was sort of very inspiring to for this kind of a, uh, it is sort of a general motivation for self-supervised, the role of self-supervised learning in general intelligence systems which is i i don't remember the exact numbers but it's something like um, you know the brain has 10 to the 15 or so synapses but we only live for 10 to the 9 seconds or something something like that so there's orders of magnitude of kind of like just from an information theoretic perspective sort of difference there and it feels unlikely although certainly possible but it potentially feels unlikely that Just from reinforcement learning alone of like, you know, one bit per second that we can kind of, you know, sufficiently constrain our understanding of the world such that we can generalize well and stuff. So that's the cool thing. One cool aspect I think about dense visual learning is you can get, you know, 10 to the 6 or 10 to the 15 or basically as much as you want, different types of of supervision, self-supervision for free um, um, per second. So that, that was kind of the part of the motivation there.
0: Yeah. So um, as you said, like the core kind of ideas is correspondence where basically there's these really fun images where you can just like color an object with sort of every pixel has its own little color. And then from different uh, viewpoints, they have the same colors, which tells you that the representation is smart and, and knows you know which parts are which parts, regardless of viewpoint. Exactly. Um so as you mentioned this can be trained via self-supervised learning so you don't need any human labeling no trial and error uh so how how does that work Sure yeah so
1: um what we what we did was at the time was um there was a recent paper by um this guy named Tanner Schmidt great uh, researcher in in 3D vision, who had a sort of particular way of of providing a, a solution to dense correspondence learning. And I should also mention, too, that the idea of correspondences, whether they're learned or otherwise retrieved in computer vision, is like... You know, there's this great quote by Takeo Kanad, who's a, you know, longtime computer vision researcher. And he says the three fundamental problems in computer vision are correspondence, correspondence, and correspondence. So it's just, you know, it's a very important thing. It's not like this little niche thing that we were sort of thinking about. Um But, uh, you know, Tanner Schmidt had come up with this sort of particular approach, which used um, dense 3D reconstruction, actually using RGBD cameras, and then um, using that to self-supervise deep networks from different views to do RGB or RGBD based um, uh, dense visual learning with, um, with, you know, pretty big deep networks. So that was the thing that uh, we sort of Basically implemented exactly that that paper, which, by the way, I always recommend is a great way if you're sort of looking to get started on a project, is just implement some recent paper and then figure out you know what you could do with it or how to make it better. So that's that's basically what we did. Um, and then uh, uh, my friend Lucas Manueli and I we were working on this together in grad school, and we came up with some ideas to make it work better. And then really though, I think the main sort of contribution of that paper was. In sort of taking that idea of doing dense visual learning and thinking about how we can benefit from that in robotics. And I actually think it's kind of cool that, um, uh, you know, not only can we use it for, for robots, but then we also like automated robots doing it. So then we could sort of like kind of automatically scale up this sort of concept of, of doing this. Um, and uh, yeah, we had a bunch of cool little demos, which um, in a lot of ways are quite simple, but actually at least at the time were not really demos that people had seen robots doing so i think there was a lot of uh great reaction from the community uh for that paper at the time and yeah it was it was just exciting it was it was a cool project for sure
0: definitely yeah i remember i think that was when i first came across your work and uh, like many i thought it was really neat um so yeah as you said you had this initial paper dense object nets uh which It was very well received. It was the best paper award at Coral, uh, which is the uh, conference on robot learning. So pretty, you know, pretty cool. And then, as you said, uh, after, you know, beyond just the general idea of this representation and how to train it, you then showed how it's particularly useful, arguably, for robotics. Uh, with a few different kind of approaches. So can you describe how how you can leverage it for robotics, both in terms of without learning and with actually learning a policy with this representation?
1: Yeah, exactly. So great question. The original paper we... Just did very simple kind of scripted things on top of this. Uh, there, so the, the deep learning part was in these visual representations, and then we kind of used them with kind of uh, traditional robotics approaches, um, which can be very quick and easy, and you know you can get some cool demos with that stuff. But then in later work, we looked at a couple different ways of using um, both um, imitation learning or reinforcement learning on tops of on top of these types of res- representations to make you know the end-to-end training of visuomotor policies um, work better, which um, I think is, you know, there's just a lot of capabilities that can be captured and the sort of future of robotics enabled, I think, when we are able to have agents that can learn how to just see the world around them and then directly be trained to take action in that world. And, um, you know, this idea of doing end-to-end visiomotor policy learning in kind of uh, 2016, 2017 had started to become more of a thing. Um, and there was definitely some you know demos of it uh, starting to work. Um, the idea with this, uh, some of this follow-up work was to just try to inject the goodness of dense object networks like inside of these things. Um, you can think of it as kind of like a, a pre-training step if you'd like to then train um motor policies and the idea was that you know maybe this could work a lot better if we did that and uh yeah i think in um both in imitation and in uh, model-based reinforcement learning uh, we had a couple of follow-up papers where yes definitely i think like the it, there's there's certain limitations of things that you can't easily apply it to but if there's kind of a, a scene of objects in front of the robot and it generally has that scene of objects and then you take dense object networks and you train these end-to-end visiomotor policies on top of them. So it's like the dense object network, you can kind of think of it as it already kind of knows how to understand like where the things are in the world in a very general way that's not just constrained to rigid objects, but can apply to deformable objects and get some generalization at the class level and things like that. And then, um, yeah, in practice, it, we found it to be pretty effective um, to train these uh, you know, full visiomotor policies on top. And thats it's really exciting too, when you're doing that, then you can actually do things like high rate, like closed loop, busy motor feedback. So that means that like the robot can just reach out in the world and touch something and it can move around and it can keep going, touching things and fiddle with different things. That's the sort of, it's, it's similar to this idea of like just learning correspondence. It's these sort of generic sensory motor capabilities are very much in this category of things that we just totally take for, you know, I know, you know, Andre, but we just totally take for granted is. Uh, how amazing they are that we as humans can do them. Um, so, yeah, that was that was kind of the gist of some of that follow-up work. Um,
0: yeah, I, I agree. I think nowadays sometimes when I do a particularly impressive manipulation action of like, you know, having like four things in my two hands and opening a door, <laughs> I think about I'm actually <laughs> impressed with myself uh, because of robotics. And yeah, it, nice, I yeah. think... Um, one of the really cool bits for me with this is um, kind of what the showed is. Often in visual motor learning, the idea is you know you have an image as your input, and you want to output the robot move commands to like push a block, whatever. And uh, in the end-to-end approach, right, you just do that from image to control uh, without any sort of Um, induced structure or, you know, whatever prior. And uh, I guess the main takeaway from your work uh, on this was that if you just swap out the image in the input with these um, pre-learned visual representations or, you know, key points of objects, the learning is way easier, uh, which, you know, I don't think maybe it wasn't entirely surprising, but was really nice to see and really exciting to see more efficient learning. So it was very cool. Thank you. Yeah.
1: So another way that sort of in hindsight too, I think about some of this, and I sort of thought about some of this at the time, but especially recently. So like uh, my brother recently had a baby and you know, on the one hand, the people or the the sort of style of thinking where like, oh, visu- you know, visual representations only need to be learned from like end-to-end, you know, interaction with the world. And that can that can totally work. But, you know, when at least for human babies, when they're very little, they're doing a lot of just passive visual observation of the world. Like there's there's a there's a while, there's a time there where they're not really going out and, and touching stuff and moving it around. They're just kind of looking around with, you know, wide open eyes. And I think this sort of idea of, you know, training to do uh, interactive manipulation of the world with already some ability to, you can think of it as like multitask or pre-training to also already have this sort of dense visual understanding of the world. Um, that's one way I like to think about it. Another thing too was we were at the time, Andre, we, you know, we were doing some of these demos with uh, imitation learning and reinforcement learning with 30 or 50 layer resnets doing the vision part. And then training the, the, um, motor policies like together with that. And at least at the time, and I actually think even still like that, those are very large vision networks to actually be able to train to do those things. A lot of people would instead, you know, call it deep learning, but really only kind of use a three or four or five layer or six layer network. But we had these like quite large, big, um, uh, you know, ResNet CNN vision networks that we were able to get to train with everything. So, um, yeah, I think I think there was a lot of there's a lot of nice aspects um for sure of of sort of that line of doing a combination of self-supervised visual learning together with um with policy learning.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it ties in nicely into I guess the next topic. So this line of work was twenty eighteen to twenty twenty-ish, roughly. And then I think mm-hmm. around twenty twenty nerf uh hit the scene and got everyone all (laughs) excited so nerf uh, just as a quick primer is this idea of from multiple views of an object you can basically be able to construct a 3d representation and then have a little like animated version where you can look at it from anywhere Uh, and in some ways this is Complementary, or, or you know, another good visual representation. Because with dense visual descriptors, it's all two D. You know, you, you have two D pixels mm-hmm. that you can annotate, and Nerf uh, is natively based on learning sort of of the whole three D scene. So now you have a couple papers um, following up. So, yeah, what was sort of your initial inspiration with getting into Nerf, and how did that kind of get going for robotics? Sure, yeah. So
1: for me, um I think uh when Nerf came out, um a lot of sort of friends of mine that uh you know work on 3D Vision, we basically like send each other chat messages being like, Wow, 3D Vision is solved. Which in 3D Vision, you know, all the, 3D Vision is definitely not solved. There's a ton to do, but um I do think a lot of people just sort of intuitively saw the results from Nerf and thought it was quite a quite a big step. Um for, for me too, I was already kind of very much tracking this, um, area too, in terms of the techniques, um, in part, because I had done an internship at, um, Facebook, uh, in the summer of like 2018 or so. And we had come up with, um, we had this paper called deep SDF, which is actually, in, uh, yeah, you know, Nerf was a ton of innovation in lots of ways. Um, in some ways, at least in a, at least in a small way, deep SDF kind of did help lead to, to the Nerf revolution. Um, and, uh, it was one of the first papers doing just sort of continuous neural network representations of, of scenes. Um, but at that time we were just doing, just doing geometry with sign distance functions. Nerf was one of the first ones and a really successful one and, and bringing that into um, being able to learn just from RGB pixels and actually like um, doing the sort of multi-view novel view synthesis, including of, um, you yeah, of, of, of full color RGB um, without, having explicit geometric, um, supervision. So that was, um, again, it was a really exciting time when, when Nerf first came out. And I think a lot of us kind of just instantly knew like, oh, wow, there's, there's, uh, there's quite a, quite a lot happening here. Um, as sort of, a somebody who's especially passionate about ro- robotics too, like even it wasn't even Highlighted in the original paper, but nerve had these sort of views of like, you know, moving around in the world and just having amazing looking depth images. And for a lot of people in robotics, we know that like um, the sort of uh, long history of trying to get stereo vision or time of flight um, uh, depth images of the world, uh, that that often does, hasn't, it has often had a lot of failure modes and sort of limits in the precision and fidelity of which, um, uh, Uh, these types of sensors can geometrically understand the world, whereas Nerf just can have really high fidelity um, uh, geometric understanding. So it was definitely exciting. And um, yeah, I think uh, pretty soon after that, there was this, you know, itch to try and see how we could make Nerf um, benefit robotics. Um, And um, at this point now uh, we have, you know, yeah, three or four works that we've done trying to, um, explore this a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to be done. So I'm happy to, we could talk through yeah. some of the things that we've done there, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot more to be done too. Yeah.
0: Oh, of course. There's always a lot to be done, but uh, yeah, let's, let's dig in into a few of these works in particular. Uh, so I think first up you have iNerf, which is inverting nerf for pose estimation. Uh, the title kind of tells you the outcome but uh yeah how how did that work and why is nerf good for pose estimation of objects
1: sure yeah so that one um i would put that in the category of i i think it's a, i think it's a really nice paper and i think it's also one of the categories of it shouldn't be it, too surprising of an idea, sort of in hindsight, but to be honest, it actually was not clear that that was really going to work that well. And um, yeah, I think it's one of these kind of, of course, hindsight, um, but it wasn't obvious that it was going to work that well. Um, another thing too, was at least at the time, um, it said, so this this paper is generally, and then I can talk through how it works, but this paper is generally in the category of using NERF for pose estimation, as you said, Andre, the title indicates, but we also... The computer vision community really wants things to be quantitative numbers driven and like beat all the benchmarks and to be honest, we were more just sort of amazed that like it could work, and that like probably in the long term because like we could tell that like the the, the nerf's almost like its own little subfield now, and we could just tell that like people will make it better and better and better, and any limitations that currently exist just because there 's so much activity in general in the research world in the area that maybe some of that would be eventually solved. So it was by no means kind of a state of the art on some of the benchmarks at the time approach, but we were just, we thought it was quite, um, fascinating and it did come with some kind of unique aspects like when, um, combined with a uh, pix to nerf, it can do like category level RGB only pose estimation, which is actually really tricky to do. So this, this project I nerf, um, it was led by, uh, Yenxin Lin who i have worked with a couple papers since then as well on, and he was an intern, um, at Google with us. And, um, yeah, he just, uh, he just, Yenshin just kind of got it working like an, at least initial version, like very quickly. Um, and, uh, we did a lot of work and sort of uh, testing out how far it can really go, but it it is kind of crazy that you so what you do is you assume you already have like a nerf of an object and then you just kind of look at a picture of of that object again, and then you just compare the image that you're seeing in the real world. To a rendering of if you thought that object was approximately somewhere, this is generally in the category of like analysis by synthesis, but a different style of doing it. And then you can just back propagate through the nerf to update the pose from which you're rendering the nerf and you just do that. And then um, at least if you have a reasonable initialization, then you can get really precise pose estimation that way. Um, so that was pretty cool. And I should also say too, just like as a little bit more context, like, you know, why are we even talking about pose estimation? Um, as you know, Andre, of course, but for, uh, for other folks too, um, it, it, pose estimation is generally a, uh, generally a useful thing in robotics and, um, and, uh, it's a very well-defined problem. Uh, you know, being un- able to understand where in 3d in the world objects are like, um, it's just something that in a lot of applications in robotics or augmented reality, you might just want to know, right? And um, it's a very well-defined problem. And we just wanted to see where we could start to get NERF to maybe be a little bit uh, sort of directly relevant for, for robots. So that was, that was the kind of idea of sort of why that problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's always nice to have an idea that seems like it should work, and then it works, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> often doesn't happen. So in this case, uh, it's cool to hear that it uh, worked out. Uh, and then following that, you had um, the paper Nerf Supervision, learning dense object descriptors from Nerf, uh, so tying back a little bit to the prior topic. So yeah, how do you use nerf to learn these dense object descriptors?
1: Sure, so this was um an, another um project that I worked on with Yinchen Lin and 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 others. Um and uh very much so. Uh, you know, we as, as you said, we we and we were talking through dense object nets before. This paper was very much like, hey, we can just use nerf to actually get rid of I would say some of the major limitations of our whole entire previous like dense object networks uh, setup. So um, as I think I did mention before, dense object nets at the time when we were doing that did require depth sensors and sort of a little bit um, older fashion, which is funny to say now, but true way of doing 3d reconstruction of the world. Um, and there's, there's just a lot of limitations there. Like not everything has depth sensors. You can't just like use us. I mean, actually some smartphones do have depth sensors, but uh, you know, like a iPhone true depth, but you can't just kind of easily use them to just kind of look at any object. And especially depth sensors don't really work on clear things or shiny things, or they're also just limited and how high fidelity they are. So the very simple idea was just, you know, what if we could just use Nerf to make dense object networks work better and, um, that was the kind of the genesis of it. Um, but then I think there was some cool things that we figured out along the way too. So for one, yes, definitely. You can just basically nerf the world and then use your nerfed world to train these dense object nets. And then you just kind of, you know, ride the backbone of everything else we had shown before that this can make, you know, visual or policy learning work better, a bunch of different things work better. Um, a cool little technical detail we figured out, it's, it's kind of niche, but one that I kind of one that I like a lot is that when you have these, um, uh, you know, dense three D representations of NERF, and you're sort of trying to guess the uh, geometric correspondence between two different views, which is the thing required to um, train dense object networks. If you just have a depth sensor and you just have like a, you know, a Intel RealSense just telling you the depth of each pixel, then that's all you have. You just have like one depth per pixel. But when we do it ourselves and we build these like rich, beautiful NERFs. We actually, for each pixel, we can have an entire distribution of correspondences of where, like, where are all the different possible pixels that it could be. And this is a really sort of, uh, sort of like, beautiful way to handle challenging edge cases and like things where, like, the pixel that you're looking at might sort of nick the corner of an object and actually kind of have two correspondences in a different view, things like that. So there's this sort of much richer. It just sort of at a high level highlights the rich ability of when you kind of remove just, uh, you know, abstractions of things like uh, algorithms that you have no insight into the inside of them, like how a Intel real sense step sensor works. And instead you can kind of build the whole thing yourself. There's just a lot of like cool opportunities for making things just kind of fundamentally better. And that, that, that little aspect did actually make the correspondence learning work a lot better. And these things we highlighted in that paper, um, especially like working on objects that are thin and shiny or uh, clear. These are things that are fundamentally hard for 3D uh, vision traditionally. And yeah, it can all work with NERF. It can also all work with uh, you know, other objects. Um, it just generally um, kind of, again, gets rid of one of the main limitations from the previous Sense Object Network's work, which is that you needed an RGBD camera. Now you can just do it with NERF.
0: Yeah, yeah, and often kind of that's what you want in follow-up research is to build on your prior work but then make it better by removing some of the simplifications and limitations and so on. Um and then yeah, I think the the next thing uh, also ties in nicely with you have the paper reinforcement learning of neural radiance fields. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it ties in pretty strongly to this notion we talked about before, where if you have dense uh, visual representation, you use that to learn a visual motor policy. It just works a lot better when if you go from images. And here, the main idea is similarly, if you have Nerf and you use that as an input, it also works a lot better. So uh, is that about right? And you know, how, how did you go about discovering that and working on this project?
1: Yeah. So that is that, it's definitely in a high level, you know, sort of uh, right summary, I would say. There's there's a lot of details. And in, the, in this case, this one is is really quite different. Um, um, but yes, definitely in the category of like, oh, can we just kind of use NERF to just generically make uh, policy learning work better? So this one's quite cool. So this this project was um, led by uh, Danny Dreis, uh, who is, who's a student at uh, TU Berlin. Um, and the idea is it's actually quite tricky in in a couple different ways um, to to try and do this, but the, the the solution is there. At least one solution that we we, we looked at. The reason it's quite tricky is because um, at least traditionally, Nerf is very s- slow. Um, and there's since been a lot of work where like now we can you know train Nerf like pretty quick. But but when we say we train Nerf, you know, pretty quick now now we we think of you know one or ten seconds as being quick. But but we want something where the robot can see the world and react in, you know, 10 or 30 milliseconds. So it can do, you know, you know, 30 things per second. And that that's what we need in order to, you know, have the capability to sort of react in real time, interacting with the world like, like humans do. So in this project, the approach is to have um, this thing, which is a latent condition nerf. Um, so you don't just have like one nerf of the world, but you rather have a latent code which is able to manipulate and change the state of the world all together in sort of one latent condition nerve. So, the idea of having a latent condition nerve had been explored initially in some follow-up works to the original um, Nerf paper. So one is called like Nerf in the wild, which had these sort of latent codes for um, things like lighting uh, or weather and other things like that. And that was a really cool paper. They showed they could actually do Nerfs of just from like photo collections out on the internet of like, you know, landmarks things that people take a ton of photos of. So that, that was, that was really cool. And then other works has started looking at, okay, well, I can have a latent code, but I want to be able to infer what the latent code is like in the moment when I look at a scene, so there's one paper called Pixnerf that did that, and there were others. the The thing that we do here is we sort of take these latent condition nerves, train them on the sort of environment, the scene that the uh, that you can think of a robot might seeing, and it's able to learn this latent condition nerve. Where this latent code, you can think of it as a very small, uh, low dimensional representation of what is actually changing about the scene in, in front of the robot. So now you can think of that as like a reasonable state representation and, in, in you know, reinforcement learning, imitation learning, it's helpful to kind of think of like, you know, what is the state? And it's helpful to have that be a nice and low dimensional thing. In this case too, since it's Nerf, it can benefit from all the like, you know, beautiful things about multi-view, uh, 3D learning, but all achievable just from like regular um, RGB pixel cameras. So the, in practice, what you do is you learn this latent condition nerf of the world. And then when you have your policy, you can just learn this encoder, which just looks at the world, figures out what is the latent code right now. And that thing can just be a CNN that works in like 10 milliseconds or so. Um, you get a great latent code of the environment and you train your policy on top of that. I guess one other sort of interpretation of this too, is there's actually been a long history of trying to learn auto encoders of of the environment or of the world and then train your rl policy or whatever it is on top of it you can kind of very simply in, interpret this as just another way of having an autoencoder but where the autoencoder is informed by the 3d inductive bias of nerf and, and just in practice in our experiments it shows that like this can give you a really nicely structured latent code that's good for policy learning
0: Mm, yeah that's that's interesting this auto angle basically uh compressing the the image in front of you to the stuff that you care about yeah very interesting and i'm sure we will see a lot more work on nerf robotics uh coming up but uh moving on to i guess the last pillar of your research will touch on so far we've all pretty much been talking about computer vision and how you see stuff and interpret images but another challenge for robotics is how do you make decisions um so you know if you're told you know go Fetch me a sandwich. What What are the intermediate actions that you need to do? What What does that actually mean? And so, yeah. Now we're going to discuss uh, stuff relevant to that, uh, related to large language models, um, starting with Socratic models. So, um, yeah. Could you just give an overview of Socratic models and and how language models and so on came into the picture? Sure. Yeah. So. Socratic models for me
1: was the first paper where I started um, having some experience playing with um, large language models or llms as as people like to call them and um, there's definitely a, a lot of um, capability that is inherent in these I mean you know this has very much been a topic that continues to sort of expand the you know in scope in in AI research just how capable large language models can be. They of course can fail in, in, um, in drastic ways too, but then, you know, just empirically quantitatively measured on lots of different benchmarks, large, large language models are very capable. And, um, when, when they're in a regime in which they're working well, they can do a lot of interesting stuff. So, so Socratic models, this, this was a really fun, uh, paper to work on. So we, and my, um, longtime collaborator uh Andy Zhang had had come up with some initial demos and I came in to sort of add fuel to the fire here and, and flush out ideas more. Um the the simple idea inside, I think uh a lot of uh, it's it's again one of these ones that I would say in hindsight is like pretty simple and you would sort of think that somebody would try and do this, but at least um to my knowledge, like we didn't it didn't really seem like people were doing this yet. And it's quite different than um a lot of sort of recent at least research in multimodal learning. So generally, Socratic models, it, it it's a very sort of simple and generic framework and can be applied to a lot of different problems in AI, um, both in robotics, but very, very much outside of robotics. Any field that has sort of multiple different types of, of modalities of input. Um, and you want to do decision-making or build applications for these things, Socratic models can be used for. So um, the the so the simple idea is um If you want to train, if you want to have a multimodal AI system, so a system that operates on different types of modalities, like how are you going to get one? The sort of the dominant paradigm here, and it makes a lot of sense and has a lot of advantages, especially when you have a lot of data, is to just train a big model on all the different modalities together. And that makes a lot of sense. But what we look at in in this paper is like, well, actually, there's a lot of practical use cases where if instead all you do is you just um, uh, you just like compose applications together just with language? So rather than having the intermediate representation of kind of the multimodal reasoning be just. Um, you know, abstract um, intermediate layers in some big neural network, which is, there's a lot of good reasons for doing that. But if instead you have a bunch of different models that already know how to quote unquote talk language that um, what I really just mean by that is that you, they can either have language as input or as output from the, from the models, then we can just sort of compose programs that can put the different models together in a way to sort of, you know, talk to each other, so to speak. And, 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 Um, address applications that none of the models could do by themselves. Um, So there's of course a lot of limitations for using language as the intermediate representation, but there's a lot of benefits too. So while there are many cases where sort of fine grained spatial detail, like it's true that like an image is worth a thousand words, you know, which, which is, you know, that's a saying that people say, which is that like uh, it takes a lot of words to describe a lot of things like, you know, complex visual detail, but at the same time, You know, the gist of an image is probably only worth 10 words, (laughs) you know, and if you can get the gist of an image and you can get it into natural language, a lot of the power of something like Socratic models is driven by how capable LLMs are. So if you can take vision modalities, audio modalities, different types of, you know, niches within vision modalities, and you can... or ways of processing vision modalities and you can have, um, large visual language models, large audio language models, ones of different types, and you can put them all together with language. Um, you can do a lot of different things. So in the paper we looked at like lots of different applications and being like image captioning, contextual image captioning, where you're not just captioning an image, but you also have additional text context, um, doing video to text retrieval, um, doing like a very long form video understanding of like ego video, um, doing a, like a robot demo, just like a lot of different things. Um, So yeah, we're just excited about it as a uh, sort of a a different way of thinking about building multimodal systems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, yeah, pretty surprising in a way that it works so well. And partially I guess because it enables you to have this common interface where different models trained totally separately can be composed, as you say, via just talking Socratic style and, uh, yeah that's that's quite novel and and really cool I, w-
1: I was gonna say one other one other thing on it andre too is um i think it's it's just interesting to think in the sort of long term of like where AI is headed like whether this is actually a potentially pretty practical long term approach and the if you sort of think about kind of the end game of like where are all these like big foundation models like where are they going so like one of the reasons socratic models is pretty um, I think a viable approach right now is that like, you know, there's GPT-3 in their palm, but they are only language models. And then there's things like clip, which can do, you know, vision language with like image and text captions, but that kind of only does text captions. There's other things like, you know, we can have audio, like clip style things or speech to text, et cetera. I think one certain possible route of the future is that, um, people just try and for every different sort of multimodal application they want to do, they're just training huge models for all of those different multimodal applications. But there's just so many different ones. And, you know, sometimes you don't want any vision. You only have audio and text. You don't have any vision. So do you train like a specialized model? And there's different types of applications and all these different with all these different types of modalities. So are you just training like these huge models all the different times for all these different applications? Or instead, do you just sort of take these more sort of specialized models and put them together? Um and another thing too is with Socratic models, you can do everything zero shot. So you don't need to do any training. You just sort of write programs and you can just put things together. Um, you also can use models that are sort of you don't have full access to. So like note, the GPT-3 weights are not publicly available. You can just access it over an API. So it's impossible for anybody outside OpenAI, at least right now, to try and jointly train GPT-3 with other modalities. You just can't do that. But GPT-3 is so much better than GPT-2 that if you just only have language in and out of GPT-3, then you can sort of beat things that were using GPT-2, but doing joint training of the different modalities. Um, so yeah, I just think it's it's interesting from an endgame perspective. I think the the sort of all the if there is an alternative that is maybe potentially likely, is it's the, you know, there actually just is one huge model sort of. Yeah, capacity. like that. Gatto that seems style. like it could happen, and I—I I mean, like way bigger. You know, something that is like as good as GPT three or GPT four, and you know, and as vision, and as audio, and as embodied reason. Like that seems possible, but that's you know, it might be some time before we get there.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's really interesting to think about where this where this goes, uh, eventually. But, you know, in the short term, uh, we are a little more practical. So I guess another really cool bit is once you have this general idea, it turned out that you can apply it to robotics, uh, pretty intuitively. So, the next paper was uh inner monologue, which very much built on the Socratic uh models work to make it be useful for robotics. And and none of these models were trained with that in mind, really, but turned out to be usable for that. So yeah, how does inner monologue work um in terms of before you had Socratic models, now you have, I guess, models talking to themselves or something?
1: Yes, definitely. So the Inner Monologue Project, uh, which there was, you know, uh, a, a lot of folks at, on my team at Google involved in that project, um, and it did very much, um, you know, build on some of the ideas of Socratic models, and also kind of merged it with uh, Andrea. As you know, there was this paper called SACAN, which was from our team as well, which uh, was um, the first paper to look at using large language models for real robots to think about planning sequences of. Of actions in the world. So if you have um, uh, sort of skills that can be described by language and you want to sequence them in the world, Seikan was, um, it, it is an algorithm to do that. And there was a, um, that was, again, I think very exciting. And uh, it was a very large effort from a lot of folks on, on our team to sort of make that happen. Um, Seikan of course, uh, was a, you know, pioneering work in a lot of ways, but then as with anything, there's there's always lots of limitations. And monologue, looked at at least one approach to try and look at, can we partially resolve some of these limitations? So um, the idea is to try and interject into the middle of an embodied uh, robot in the world, not just sort of planning its actions by text, but a very simple idea of also then iteratively looking at the world and actually, seeing what happens, describe that into language, and then put that back into the um, the sort of textually represented plan that the robot is doing. And this actually resolves a major limitation from um, the sort of you know just SayCan algorithm, which is that you know, SayCan was using a large language model to plan sequences of actions in the world, but it at the textual planning level, which is where some of this magic happens with being able to use the large language model, at that level, it was what we call just open loop, um, which is a key sort of thing in robotics, which means that you just assume that everything that you wanted to happen just happens. Um, and in the second algorithm, there's actually closed loop down at the sort of individual skill level. That's sort of complicated, but at the high, this high textual reasoning level, it was all open loop. So with inner monologue, by sort of interleaving into the second algorithm, this sort of Socratic model's idea of just go describe the world with language, put it back into reasoning for your large language model. It just very simply helps with a lot of practical aspects of having an embodied, um, you know, robot, um, uh, AI reasoner in the real world. So you can, you know, try to do something, it cannot work. And then you can realize that it didn't work and you can try it again or try a different strategy. Um, you know, things like that. I'll also say that, w- you know, we looked at a couple different instantiations of providing language description of the world and involving it into inner monologue. Um, but in general, you know, it's, there's not a full solution, uh, in all cases of being able to generically describe the scene in language. That's like a very sort of open computer vision problem. So there's going to be many cases where you can't find, a uh, you know, in practice sufficient sort of language, um, sort of like a visual language model to describe the scene in language. That's just a very open, you know, computer vision problem. But in certain cases you can do, um, different types of, you know, success detection or object detection, things like this that can then in, inform, um, uh, this inner monologue for these, for these, um, LLM
0: based, um, robot reasoning. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, uh, I think it, it ties in, in, in a nice way here going to language, because in some ways it's, say can and inner monologue are doing things that kind of make sense at a high level or you would think might work with these large language (laughs) models. You say, you know, retrieve an apple and then the large language model can tell you, okay, go to the kitchen, go to the counter, uh, you know, pick up the apple. And then the assumption is you have these like primitive skills of go to and pick up and so on that are separate. and then there were some, you know, the main question is how do you let the language model know about the world and, and what is in front of it, because it doesn't have vision. And it turns out, as you said, that you can just use the Socratic model idea. But um, then, you know, the the nice follow-up next was you know, before you were doing this output of the language model just says go to, you know, pick up, etc. And just last month, there was a new paper, uh, CODIS policies, uh, kind of again in this line of work of how do we use language models for uh, controlling robots and planning. So yeah, it, how does that sort of compare and contrast with uh, these two prior works?
1: Sure. Yeah. So this was a a really cool project led by um, uh, Jackie Liang, who is an intern. Um, uh, with Andy Zhang um, at our robotics uh, at Google office in New York City, um, and I was uh, lucky to be able to help a bit with the project. So the um, the really cool idea here is, um, um, you know, Andre, you were talking about sort of these language representations and reasoning in the real world. For the most part, these these prior papers were um, hadn't fully yet thought about this idea of having that reasoning happen in code rather than more natural language. We had actually explored this ever so slightly in the original Socratic Models paper, but in a very limited way. And in CODA's policies, we really sort of like pulled on this thread more of like, you know, there's these language models that are trained on code that, you know, this is like a shipped product in like GitHub copilot and, you know, like the open AI codex and, um, you know, Google with Palm Coder has their own versions of these as well. They're, they're very, they're very powerful. Um, they're, you know, these language models can be pretty good at writing code and they sort of handle a lot of the, you know, tediously aspects of, of, I mean, I love writing code, but like <laughs> these language models sort of copilots are, are very nice. I think, uh, in, in, um, in, um, Helping human programmers, but also in this case, what we do is just have the have the sort of policy of the robot just be a language model that then writes code and can um, sort of then that code then runs and responds to perceptual inputs in the real world and can parameterize, you know, like just writing direct robot low-level control API code to control the robot to move around. Um, it's also a really nice way to do like precise spatial reasoning. Um, so if you have sort of like XY coordinates of different objects in the world um, using third-party libraries like a NumPy, a SciPy, or a Shapely, you can like sort of just with a little bit of few-shot prompting, have the robot be able to think of things like, oh, you know, you want me to put this block 10 centimeters to the left of this other block, or, you know, put these four blocks into a line. And it can just sort of write, uh, you know, for loops of, of Python using third-party libraries to just sort of parameterize the robot directly to do these actions, um, which I think is pretty cool. I'll say one more thing on CODIS policies too, which is that there's a really cool idea in there which can apply to Lots of things outside of of just using them for robots, but there's this idea of actually having hierarchical prompting and hierarchical code completion, where you can actually just prompt the LLM to sort of write some code, even though it might not sort of have all of the underlying functions implemented. So we do this as real programmers too. We just sort of you know sort of imagine we might sort of think of a function and then we implement it later, and then you can try to run the code and then if a function doesn't exist then you can catch that and then go and try and and run that or sorry uh, write that new function so it's this hierarchical way of uh, using the llm to write the code and it turns out that not only does that work especially well for these sort of embodied uh, uh, code writing uh, uh policies but also um just generically improves, like, code writing, like, OpenAI's, like, benchmark that they release with Codex. Um, Mm. Just, you know, generic uh, code completion uh, uh, benchmark. So I think that's pretty cool, and I'm excited for, um, you know, people just generally in in, uh, uh, code generation to try out the idea more.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, you know, a few different iterations, and I guess what's worth noting is all of this happened in, like, five months (laughs) as far as the paper releases, right? It's been very Mm -hmm. rapid pace and, you know, very exciting. And then, uh, in fact, the scheduling of this was kind of nice because, like, last week, uh, like ten, eight, something, yeah, like uh, nine days ago, uh, a new paper of you and others uh, came out called Interactive Language, uh, Talking to Robots in Real Time. Uh, not quite on the LLM front, but still in this general direction of language and so on. So uh, maybe just uh, at a high level, uh, how does this one uh, build on and what does it add over these prior things?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, I'm really excited about this paper too. This one is in some ways, it's very complementary to these other ones we were just talking about. So to give... A kind of both a highlight and a contrast for with some of the previous works code as policies for example there was no data collection everything is just zero shot so it it it, um some of the perception parts are enabled by just downloading open vocabulary object detectors and then is just prompting a code writing llm to then like you know do the policies on the robot there's it everything's zero shot there's no data collection and the robot demos you know there's of course limitations, but there's some definitely very cool capabilities there, and it just kind of works. Um, those types of projects, if they're zero shot, you don't need any. You don't even need to do any training. You just do some prompting. You run. You run the demos. Those projects can, in practice, develop very quickly. So that whole thing was started and ended as just a you know a, a really well done summer internship project. Um, this uh, uh, paper we just released last week, interactive language is on the side of, you know what, well, sometimes we actually, if we really want to sort of have super capable robots, we're probably going to need to collect a good amount of data. And uh, this project, um, you know, I'll share it, it's been going on for sort of much over a year, uh, sort of a year and a half, almost two years, including all the initial planning phases. And this project is very much on the sort of, other end of the spectrum of a ton of data and a ton of data of the robot interacting in the real world and paired with language and sort of at a very like fine grained sensory motor level um, being able to train to um, capably react to um, a very wide variety of language commands and sort of execute them in the real world. Another aspect of this paper that we like to highlight is because everything is just, it all is just one big transformer that takes in a video and text and maps it to low-level actions. And that thing all runs in 10 milliseconds or so. Everything is just like very real time. So the robot is just like moving around, interacting with things in the world, and you can just talk to the robot and it just starts doing new things immediately, which you would think sort of a lot of these other papers should kind of be able to do. But um, uh, in general, um, you know, this has been kind of like a, you know, as we mentioned at the start of the paper, the sort of like just being able to tell a robot to do something and it can kind of do this. This has been, you know, a goal of AI research since at least Shirley, uh, which is this sort of system developed by Terry Winograd and like, you know, starting in the late 60s. Um, and uh, this is kind of, I think, our attempt to kind of uh, a- attack a- towards, you know, I shouldn't say attack, but, you know, sort of work towards that, work towards that goal. So the hard part of this one is how do you scale up a ton of data collection? So for this project, we have uh, almost 600,000 language labeled trajectories of the robot interacting in the world. I should say more specifically 400,000 in the real world and almost 200,000 in simulation. And, um, for a robotics project, this is like one or two orders of magnitude bigger than, at least as far as I know, any other sort of data set that's been assembled for this. Um, and uh, and then where it's it's not released yet, but hopefully we'll be releasing soon the data and it will be, in terms of release data sets, quite, uh, you know, quite a bit bigger than other things that we know of. So that's one of the aspects of this work too, is I'm just really excited to like have this be out there when I release all the code for training the models. And... Um, I, I think it could be a really useful sort of asset for the community because I I think our results are, I'm very proud of our results. We did sort of require a ton of data to get this to work. So a thing that I would be really interested if people can do in the future would be to try and kind of get this to work with, you know, for example, much less data. We're also to our policies that we were able to train. We're like pretty good, you know, in simulation, They can get like 80% success on our benchmark. But there's certainly room for Im- improvement there. Um, and yeah, I could talk through some of the, some of the methods for, for this paper, let me say that basically the, one of the key enablers for this was, um, uh, so this, this paper was led by Corey Lynch and, Azan Wahid. And, um, the, um, the core idea of how we scale this data set, uh, was based off of, uh, some of, um, Corey's previous work that he had done with Pierre Sermonet, where the idea is to just basically have the robot out in the world doing a bunch of different things. And then you, after the fact, label different trajectory segments of the language of what's happening. And then if you just kind of do that, then you can be able to train a language conditioned policy. So this sort of hindsight relabeling with language, this was... Uh, a very sort of uh, compelling idea when sort of Corey and Pierre just first put this out a couple of years ago. And it's been a couple of years now, but it sort of took a while for us to sort of yeah, try and take that idea and get it really working in the real world at scale. Um, um, and so there's a bunch of new ideas and this new paper that sort of, sort of makes that sort of
0: viable in the real world. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, as you said, one of the reasons robotics is hard is that unlike, you know, computer vision, language, right, we don't have an easy way to collect the data for uh, a robot doing something, Uh so in this case, you know, you had to have people actually teleoperate the robot to do stuff and annotate and collecting uh, 2,700 hours of people moving robots is, you know, that that's right. by itself takes a lot of time, right? So uh, I think, but I think a lot of people, myself included, also kind of suspected that if you just invest the time and the effort to get a lot of data that by itself would be, would lead to quite a bit of progress. And I think it seems to be the case that that's what you kind of got is mainly by finding how to collect the data and and using that to train um, a policy in a a fairly standard way. It just Mm -hmm. is able to do a huge variety of stuff straight from, from text.
1: Yes, and so yeah, a couple of things to clarify the um, I do want to call out that, yes i I think part of our point is that this does just kind of work if you just have a ton of data and you label it with language and you do you know imitation learning, we use behavior cloning, and it's sort of intentionally simple and sort of some of the key parts of the method side um, and I do think that the environment that we did this in, I think it was at a good level of you know it's not nearly as complex as some like, you know, mobile humanoid robot just out roaming the real world, the open world and just, you know, doing anything. It's rather just a robot sitting next to a table, pushing eight different blocks around. But even just with that level of like, there's eight different blocks, it's it just quickly very combinatorially explodes in terms of all the different sort of very subtle language descriptions or instructions that you could ask the robot to do. And in practice, we have like, you know, again, hundreds of thousands of these different language level trajectories. The real robot was trained with 87,000 different language instructions. And then you can sort of then iteratively ask the robot to do like one thing and then the next thing, and you can reach like hundreds of thousands of different language distinguishable goal states in its environment. And um, yeah, again, I think sort of as a uh, as a sort of stepping stone to even more complex language interaction and even in, in, um, you know, even richer environments. uh, This is our sort of take of, okay, let's just try and find something that's complex enough so that it's quite challenging and interesting, but at the same time tractable, collect a bunch of data, see how good it works, and then try and release as much as we can to the community to then um, use that as a a building block for future work in um, natural language interactable Robots, So, yeah, that's that's why we're excited about this one.
0: Hmm. Yeah, like uh, in figure one, first page of a paper, you have an example of make a green eyed smiley face, <laughs> which is a pretty nice illustrative example of the sort of flexibility here. Um, and yeah, I guess the next question is, right, you we've been seeing all this work again done in the span of five months on leveraging language for flexible generalization of how do I do things in various, uh, contexts. Um, so a lot of progress has been made very rapidly and without revealing any secrets, kind of whatever broad future directions, uh, in terms of following up and building on this work, you know, whatever things to try next, uh, and maybe one of the, whatever limitations to, to tackle. Certainly.
1: So I think it's, you know, without saying too much about, you know, of course in research, you know, as researchers, you don't, you never want to share too much about exactly what you're working on next, but it's always, you can always, it's always easy just to talk about limitations. So maybe I can focus on yeah, the limitations of a lot of this stuff and maybe, maybe hint at some of the things that we're working on. But, you know, on the one hand, I think for a lot of us has been very exciting, all this progress in, uh, um, uh, real robots being able to do a lot more with language, whether it's you know using large language models or having much richer data sets and methods for um, being able to actually get language working together with robots. Um, at the same time, there's just so many aspects of robotics that are, that are sort of uh, you know ripe for innovation, and also to be honest, too. While the language model stuff, I think it does really add a lot of new capability to just like what you can just put together for a robot today, but it it doesn't in my mind, at least at the moment it doesn't it sort of touch all the different problems in robotics some of the some of the key problems so the one that I would sort of call out there in particular is that very low level sensory motor all the way from vision to actions, manipulation of very complex cases with high dimensional control and things like this. That's one where, you know, none of these projects, the the last few that we just talked through um, it's, it's unclear yet how you could easily expand um, these works to, to address those things. So especially just sort of like really dexterous manipulation. So think of, um, you know, if you, Pick up an apple with your hand, um, you know, language is probably not the best way to describe the exact configuration of how you picked up the apple in your hand. You know, if you just if you pick up an apple in your hand and you look at it and then you try and think of yourself as describing precisely enough to a friend who can't see you like what is the configure like how exactly where are exactly all of your fingers touching that apple and then they were to try and like draw a picture of you touching that apple like it's they, they probably would imagine that you're doing it slightly differently than you would, and of course, if if it's just a high level semantic concept of oh, somebody picked up an apple, then a lot of those sort of details of having your friend try and draw with pen and paper exactly how you picked it up that doesn't really matter. But if it is for this low level sensory motor, you know, vision and action fusion problem of then, you know, maybe you want to take that apple in one hand and you want to use your other hand to pick out the stem from the top of that apple. Like, There's so much high-dimensional, low-level sensory motor um, uh, fusion interaction that's going on there. And it's not clear yet that the language models can help with that too much. There's some very interesting ideas. I'll say one is CODA's policies, you could imagine it maybe being extended to also kind of do the um, deeper things on the perception level side, and it could maybe help with some of the actions there. I think CODIS Policies has a very sort of strong uh, uh, capacity to be extended there. Um, and then there's also this just general idea that there's this really um, nice paper uh, that I'm thinking about from um, a colleague of mine, Igor Mordash, where they, uh, and, and others, this is, I think, with students at Berkeley, where they the language models are to a certain extent kind of just like these universal compute engines is the t- is the title of the paper where like even if something has n- nothing to necessarily do with language that they can just be used as like reasoning modules to think through anything so even though language models don't inherently have too much of this low level um touching the world and seeing the world and having the world respond to you information inside of them that, uh, they could somehow be used, uh, through additional training, additional data to then help with these kinds of, um, you know, dexterous, uh, for example, manipulation problems. There's a lot of other things too, where, um, I think that, um, there's just a ton of areas, uh, for, uh, you know, robotics to be improved and we are, uh, you know, have a lot yeah. more work to do. I would say too, like, I think there's so much happening in AI right now, right? Like these uh, these huge diffusion models just doing text to image, text to video, text to 3D, whatever. And there's just, there's so much that is happening. I think if you want to be, if you're interested in an AI research and you want to be humbled, you know, try and come and get a robot to do anything just because like, despite (laughs) all the amazing, probably, you know, Andre, like, okay, cool. Like AI is like happening, but at the same time, it's so hard to get anything just really working in the real world. And I think that's one of the main reasons why like, you know, I I love working on uh, specifically robotics as kind of a focus area for me within the broader AI area. It's just like the problems are so hard and it like forces you to just think so clearly and like deal with like really uh, challenging aspects of generic machine learning problems like you know not having a lot of data not having too many shots to train your thing like there's just so many i think it's to me it's the sort of like uh uh richest area i think to be working in broadly within ai and and also too i just like robotics for a lot of different reasons so mm-hmm. anyway I, that that was some on limitations and maybe some other things too but i don't know are there other limitations andre that uh Uh, uh, i think
0: think i think that that covers it i think as always the sort of challenge of bridging the high level decision making and the low level control is always there to some extent in robotics there's famously um you know uh tamp um task and mm -hmm. motion planning where that's a key problem so that will definitely be a you know a challenge in terms of how to unify these things and yeah I think in general maybe something that your answer points to is I think in research there's always it's not hard to get an idea of something you want to explore, whereas uh, you know it's easy to kind of get a feel of like oh maybe this has something or maybe these things can be combined or maybe this can be used for that and the the challenge in research is to actually figure out which which of these things actually might work and how, like you know, get into the details. So uh, I guess uh, you know, I'm sure you have many things on your in your, uh, in your uh, kind of mind going on, and then sooner or later we'll see more of these papers following up on this work. That's
1: that's the uh, that's the intent. Yep, definitely.
0: Yep all right so with that uh we can wrap up it's been really fun talking through these uh you know several categories of your work and especially all this stuff that's just going on at a super fast pace uh so thanks so much pete for making the time for the interview thank you so much andre thanks
1: for having me it was great chatting with you